Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Colin Miller, your host today, along with my partner, retired orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Keith Mankin. We also host the popular medical podcast, Pure Spectrum. Today, we're happy to have Dr. Jeffrey Coleman and Dr. Daniel Peach. Dr. Coleman is a former White House physician. From 2007 to 2011, he served as chief of the White House Medical Unit, designating him as the personal physician to President George W. Bush and President Barack Obama. He currently serves as senior vice president and chief quality and safety officer for Advent Health. Dr. Coleman is joined today by his colleague and co-author, Dr. Daniel Peach. Dr. Peach, a registered sports medicine physician in the UK, currently serves as executive director of clinical innovation for Advent Health. Their new book, Transformative Healthcare, and their unique career paths are the subjects for today's episode. Their book was published by Advent Health Press in August of 2021. So we've got a book uh, coming out, I think, later this summer. Uh, That's expected publication date. So we are recording here in just the beginning of June in 2021. Um, We're going to talk a lot about that, but both of you have pretty interesting backgrounds. So we're going to dig deeper into that, but maybe just start with you, Danny. Tell us a little bit about your background briefly, and then we'll switch over to Jeff. Yeah, a bit of a... a a mixed bag of careers as I've moved through. So in my early days, I was in law enforcement, um, working primarily on protection work. So the bodyguard stuff, and then progressed through into a mixed bag of osteopathic work where I worked primarily with elite athletes. So on that sports side of things in a mixed bag. So the usual rugby and football, which you term soccer here, and um, and uh, other sports, and also as COO of several engineering companies. So from that side, international telecoms companies, uh, dealing primarily with manufacturing and the interface between various countries uh, from that communication side of things. So a little bit of a varied bag that went on, but um, in some respects, managing to interface everything together. So from law enforcement, being able to speak to people and in the nice way, and that carries on into engineering and being able to work out where the problems are and solving them. And then from the sports side of things, making sure that 
all of the engineering that goes on is applied to the human body as well and to be able to resolve some of those issues that come out of it. So that's a really quick synopsis of what seems like 100 years of life so far. <laughs> Jeff? So mine was, uh, I grew up on the, uh, the other side of the, the pond here in the U.S. So I grew up, grew up near Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, went off to medical school at age 19 in Southern California. And I, um, uh, the Navy had uh, uh, sponsored me with a scholarship and I spent the next 30, 30 years um, in the U.S. Navy in Navy medicine. Uh, my clinical um, training was uh, uh, broad-based. I did a family practice uh, residency at Loma Linda um, and then also did board certification in occupational medicine with training at Johns Hopkins and aerospace medicine boards uh, with the uh, clinical training uh, through the Navy, uh, through Naval Aviation, uh, flight surgery, aerospace medicine, and also did a master's in public health uh, through Johns Hopkins. Um, my uh, Navy assignments, I spent a year at uh, 29 Palms, and then I had hardship tours in uh, Pearl Harbor, um, <laughs> Hawaii for, uh, for three years. Then we stopped in Pensacola and got uh, the flight surgery training uh, en route to uh, Danny's neck of the woods. We lived in uh, London for four years. Uh, during the mid-90s, and we had mutual um, acquaintances uh, there in London. Uh, then from 97 to 2013, um, I was assigned to the White House military office um, and did, did uh, all the different jobs uh, as a physician, whether it's uh, the senior flight surgeon for uh, Marine One or flying um, as the physician on Air Force One or as the um, uh, Camp David physician or as the White House physician um, from 2001 to 2013 and uh, ended up as the director of the White House Medical Unit during uh, President Bush 43 and physician to the president uh, for the first term of uh, uh, President Obama. So I think for many of us who, whose understanding of this comes from watching television, we've seen a lot more White House doctors on television in recent years than Previously, probably even more so than, you know, many of you would have preferred. Um, tell us a little bit more about this, Jeff. What is the White House Medical Unit? I mean, how many staff? What kind of what are the expectations? What, what, what is your, your actual duty and kind of the day to day? Uh, so the the White House Medical Unit is composed of active duty physicians, uh, critical care nurses um, and then physician assistants. Uh, most of them have uh, uh, experience in tactical and operational medicine, um, specifically from uh, combat action in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and just as important, there's also corpsmen medic, medics that provide all that infrastructure uh, support uh, that you need for a medical uh, can, uh, a unit. Um, so at the, at the White House, um, the number one job is to uh, care for the commander in chief. Um, and there's a, there's a protective medicine role that one does. Uh, protective medicine is basically a healthcare professional that's embedded with a protective detail. 
So men and women that carry guns and protect somebody, whether it's a diplomat, a rock star, um, a high net worth individual. And as um, at all times um, inside of that protective detail bubble, um, if there's a uh, attack on the principal, um, then the job of the physician and the critical care nurse is, is pretty simple. It's uh, keep the blood in the body and then have a plan of nowhere and how to get to uh, definitive care. So if somebody falls downstairs, cracks their head open, we're going to uh, keep the blood in the body, uh, get them oxygenated, get them to a, um, a level one trauma center that, that has uh, uh, surgeons and teams that can, uh, can fix them. And it's not just at the White House, but um, anywhere in the world um, that the uh, 21st century uh, head of state travels to. So I think there's, there's a lot more. We're going to explore this throughout the podcast. But how do you get a job like this? I mean, you said active duty. Um, so I assume in the past there were civilian doctors, but um, this is all active duty military. And, of course, you were as well. Um, is this actually a job you apply for? I'm thinking probably not. Yeah. Um, uh, since, since the beginning of time, it has been staffed with uh, um, active duty uh, physicians and medical staff. On occasion, there have been a civilian appointee, um, and it basically depends on um, what the, uh, uh, the president uh, decides is best for their, uh, for their needs. Um, Currently, there's a civilian that's uh, the physician for President um, Biden, um, but he did spend 20 years of active duty um, in the Army, and he was a, a White House physician for us from uh, uh, 2006 to 2017 uh, uh, with the transition, and uh, I actually appointed him to be a uh, uh, the physician for Vice President Biden. So he knows the Biden family uh, very well. Um, you have to have the qualifications um, and you have to be nominated by uh, the Surgeon General of your service. And then you go for an interview and probably the toughest hurdle is you have to qualify for the top secret um, uh, SCI um, Yankee White clearance. and. Um, just some people have had more colorful lives than others. So if you've kind of lived a nice, boring, quiet life, then that's easier to get the top secret clearance. How long does that process take? Uh, it's uh, several months. Interesting. All right. We're going to come back to this a little bit, but um, we want to make sure that we're, uh, we're getting, you know, the full discussion here. So let's just bet both of you here. Let's talk about this book for a moment. Um, you know, I think arguably the very best care that exists on the planet for anyone is probably for the president. Um, you know, maybe there's, I don't know, maybe Kim Jong-un has better, you know, care, but <laughs> as far as we know, it's the president of the United States. So it, it's an interesting lens here, but both of you come at it from slightly different approaches. Just um, either one, Danny or, 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 or Jeff, tell us, tell us what sparked this interest in, in the project here. So I will start with the paradox of VIP care. So the paradox of VIP care is often those that you think have the best care, they don't. They actually have poor care. They either have over-treatment, they have under-treatment, they have mistreatment. 
And unfortunately, the history of, of uh, presidential health care is, is rife with um, glaring examples of um, inappropriate treatment. Um, so with VIP care, um, most of it is getting a primary care physician to not take shortcuts and to actually do everything they're trained to do. And then for specialists, for specialty care, it's the exact opposite. It's to keep them from doing everything that they're trained to do. You know, if, if, a, if a patient just went to um, uh, uh, Thailand um, on a food tour, they come back and they have um, explosive GI issues, then they do not need um, full body imaging and full scoping. They need uh, um, some uh, fluids and they need some uh, antibiotics that are going to treat their, um, uh, their, their issues. Um, for uh, the VIP care, it basically comes down to time, fitting into their schedule, access, and then most importantly, uh, privacy of um, making sure you honor their personal privacy and their medical privacy. Um, so kind of figuring out what that um, ideal patient care looks like, which uh, was part of the, um, the methodology that um, Danny and I uh, came up with and tried. Danny, tell us uh, your side. Yeah, and, and that really sort of continues through for the, the general populace is if you want to be treated, you want to be treated at the right time by the right person at, in the right place. And it, it's what we've tended to do, and in particular in the US, is healthcare has been this massive business that's gone on. And the general thoughts and processes have, have almost taken over from what the original thoughts are from healthcare. And it's looking after the individual. And as, as Jeff said, with VIP care, it's about trying to get that balance right. And general health care is no different from that. And we tend to get wrapped up in everything that surrounds it rather than the down and dirty of, of the good nurses, the good doctors doing the best that they possibly can. And so that's really where things drove out. We have, um, we, we both work for um, a healthcare organization that wholeheartedly stands behind that patient care and is constantly looking at how we can get things better. How do we do the right thing for a patient? And that's really where we started from. We know that healthcare generally becomes enamored with technology. Um, there is always the, the, the wall of insurance companies that stops things from, from happening that should do. And part of what we looked at is how do we build a methodology of processes that would help support the physicians, the, the nursing staff, all of those clinical staff once and for all, but also keeping the balance right, being able to communicate what they mean when they mean it to the patient and also to the administrators and, and keeping that fine line balance the same as you would with that VIP, not overstepping the mark, getting it just right. Jeff, uh, a question. At what point in your White House um, assignment did it start to occur to you that this is a universal, that, that um, we're learning lessons here that should be able to, to transform 
American medicine uh, as a whole? Was there a specific instance or did just uh, best practice, you started to say, hey, this might work for everybody? During the, the, the practice of medicine, there's always three different parts. One is uh, the doctor-patient interaction. And that's always the kind of that first uh, curve. The second is um, treating populations. And the third is doing things um, for the actual health of the community. So with the doctor-patient relationship, it, it always just boils down to what is, what's best for the patient. Um, and the kind of the flow that you do of um, setting up what's best for the patient is that ideal algorithm. And if you um, kind of think about it of why can't we do that, those are the barriers, those are the obstacles. And often it was my job to remove those barriers or obstacles um, uh, to, to, to make sure that we didn't take shortcuts. And most of U.S. medicine is based on the, the sacredness, the valuableness of the physician or the hospital or the expensive machinery, as opposed to, you know, well, what's actually value added for the, for the patient. Um, so a lot of it is just uh, rearranging um, physicians, nurses, tests, um, so that uh, it fits into the individual's um, uh, algorithm. And if it's not gonna make a difference in, the, in what's being done, you don't need to do that. I, I think as well, it's it's a similar thing with if you look at sports people, um, as as general as VIPs as well. It's a similar scenario. We look after sports people to make them perform the best they possibly can. Why shouldn't we do that for everyone? Why shouldn't we look at the prevention, at being able to assign the right progress for a patient and treat everyone as that elite sports person because they're all looking to attain an end goal it's just we look at different levels of that and and i think that that really really stands out right the way through as we've as we've worked over the years to try and bring this forth and develop it more and more and ultimately obviously to the book and progress beyond that all of these experiences and elements that we've found not just from ourselves but the interface with colleagues peers and more importantly with patients have really started to stand out that everyone should be treated as that VIP, everyone should be treated as that, that professional elite sports person to get the same goal and to keep them healthy rather than just try and fix the problem and to throw on team tests, et cetera, to, to be able to, to, to constantly keep progressing that evolution of healthcare as a whole. Yeah, you know, we talked about this before, Danny. Um, we had um, Robert Watkins, he's a um, spine surgeon in Los Angeles and he, his practice is the main one for the NFL and the Olympics. So we were talking about Peyton Manning, for example, he came in and had a cervical fusion before he went back and won the Super Bowl. And one of the surprising things I think for me in that discussion is that even elite athletes, you, you assume they have the most cutting edge technologies and treatments and stem cells and all these things. And that's just not true. In fact, many professional athletes, they want what's actually been tested. It's been the standard of care. They don't want to take any chances and they want something that's predictable. You know, if I can come back at 80%, then maybe I can still have a career, not either 100% or zero. Um, and I, I guess, Jeff, maybe we have this perception of the president, the first family, that 
you know, the sky's the limit as far as the budget. There's no shortage of equipment. Anything you request for them is granted. Um, give us an idea of that, you know, for one, the resources you have and, you know, even want to talk about what's on Air Force One, um, what emergency equipment's there. But something you guys both talked about in the book is communication and also listening to people on the front line, not shooting down ideas, because that's where a lot of good ideas come from. Jeff, the culture of the White House Medical Unit, did you feel free to do that, to, to have your subordinates do that to you if they had questions about the care? And as far as the principles, you know, did you feel that you could freely talk to them? Um, you know, if they were sick and they don't need to get on a plane to go somewhere, how did that communication aspect go? I know that's a big question, but, um, you know, we'll start one with uh, the resources, but then also you know, communication between you and your patients? So um, the caveat I would lead with is um, my experience is only up till 2013. Um, 2013, I ret retired from the Navy. Um, and um, so all of my experience uh, is based upon uh, the White House from uh, uh, 2013 or before. Um, at that time, uh, the White House Medical Unit um, our, our mantra with our, um, anyone in our care was um, no politics, no policy, just trusted medical advice. Um, my opinion is once you start um, uh, having a press conference where you are um, uh, giving out misinformation or you're withholding information, then uh, you've uh, crossed the line and none of that, um, uh, you know, none of that uh, reliability is, um, is there anymore. Um, and so it's just, it's just a different world. Um, but with our um, individual uh, patients, uh, it's very much, you can't care if you're not there. Um, uh, so um, a lot of what a physician does is knows when somebody um, is uh, has a condition that um, uh, they are going down the tubes and they need to get to farther care, and we make those decisions all the time, and we just can't be wrong. Um, on the other hand, uh, you don't want to make a mountain of a molehill, so um, a lot is based on uh, just like the practice of, me of medicine. Uh, what's the evidence? What's the experience? And then at the heart of it is the uh, trust. You know, what's the, uh, uh, that doctor patient um, uh, uh, trust level. Um, the uh, other aspects is you have to, you have to have um, a certain equipment with you uh, to care for a patient. Um, and you also have to know the assets around you. Um, and uh, uh, the different uh, like medical, medical equipment, it can't be, um, it, it just can't get in the way of, um, of a presidential visit. So of course we would uh, utilize local assets and then sometimes there's uh, equipment that we would have uh, pre-positioned at a hotel or positioned in the motorcade uh, that basically, you know, equipment that doctors and nurses use every day to, to uh, evaluate patients or, or save lives. 
without getting to specifics, were there times when you had some pushback from a principal, could be the president or even a senior staff member about care you're recommending or lack of activity following treatment? I mean, and you can be as general as you need to be, but um, how did you deal with those kinds of situations? Well, I, I, um, it's, it's just like any other patient. Um, you give them your advice, you, um, give them written instructions, you, um, and, uh, uh, patients often follow it. And sometimes, uh, sometimes patients don't. And, um, uh, uh, part of, uh, part of it is, um, just always be truthful with the American people because eventually they're going to, they're going to find out about, um, things anyway. And, um, all the principles that I were involved with, that was, that was the number one on their list is to be, uh, you know, to be truthful with the American people. Did you get all the equipment and resources you asked for? Was that, was it pretty much a, a blank check or? Um, so I think when you're reasonable in the, um, uh, much more important than, than the equipment is actually, uh, uh, people and resources. Um, so if you're going into a country that doesn't have, um, a trauma surgeon or a trauma team, uh, then we would make sure that, um, uh, there was one, um, in that area. So it's not necessarily, uh, you know, the, the important part is uh, uh, highly trained healthcare personnel and having a plan. Danny, I cut you off. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It, it, I, I think one of the big things that, that comes out is that, um, or a, a couple of things. Firstly, um, we, we seem to have the, the, um, the focus on the technology that's there. And as Jeff said, the important part of healthcare is going back to the roots, is going back to the good old fashioned doctor and nursing and what that looks like. And that's the important thing. And it doesn't matter if it's um, a, a VIP of any sort or it's the man on the street, having that communication, having that ability to sit down face to face, explain the situation and allow them to make the, the decision for them, giving them all of the, the truthful information is important. Uh, we, we tend to find now that in particular with say the media and what we've experienced with COVID, it, it has been driven about all of the high points that are there about where the doom and gloom is rather than looking the whole truth and being able to pick between um, what's made up, what is factual, and when we don't know, being able to say, look, we don't actually know at this point, but we're working on it. And I think that's the same when you're explaining to a, a patient, look, this is how we need to progress with treatment, or these are the tests that we need to do, laying out all of that information. And that's part and parcel of what we've tried to bring out within the book and, and, and with, with working with physicians and nurses generally is do the right thing. If you do that, everything else will fall into place. And it's not necessarily about getting all of the right um, equipment in, the right MRIs and the, the right ultrasound testing equipment that's there. It's about being able to position it correctly for, for those patients. 
Oh, and maybe if I could tell a, a short story from, from the transformative healthcare book. Um, in 2008, I was the, um, on the presidential advance, I was the, the medical officer uh, when we went to the Beijing Olympics. So at the Beijing Olympics, um, the, uh, uh, the U.S. Embassy doctor uh, was there, you know, wanted to show us, um, you know, VIP type areas, which I could care less about in caring for a, uh, for a, for a patient. Um, and the, uh, so, so, so I just went direct to the, uh, the Chinese medical planners and said, uh, you know, we need, you know, show me the hospital that, um, you know, you would take a knife stabbing or a gunshot wound to. And so, you know, of course they're indignant that that will not happen here. And, you know, I've heard that at many uh, authoritative countries around the world. And so, okay, just humor me. So they did take me to, um, uh, to a hospital. Uh, the hospital was uh, 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 kind of close down close to Tiananmen Square and went through with their teams. And again, they wanted to show me the, this new VIP suite that they had made for the different heads of state that are coming in that they could convalesce or recoup in. And it was, um, it basically was in an area that, you know, if you want to go to the Ritz, fine, but the, you know, I, I want to see where you're going to save somebody's life. So we walked through the um, emergency department, the trauma suite, um, went over the trauma plan and they basically uh, had a trauma plan that, you know, we sit at home and we get called in. And I just said, that's not going to work during, um, you, you, you don't understand how disruptive that, you know, Olympics are and those type of things. And especially when you have not one president, but a hundred that come in. Um, so uh, to their credit, they changed the plan and they um, had a uh, trauma team A, that trauma team B uh, that was pre-positioned at the hospital. And um, uh, the uh, Olympics uh, uh, came during uh, uh, early August in 2008. And I think it's a public record. Um, there was a, a individual um, uh, who was mentally disturbed at the, uh, the bell tower and he uh, attacked uh, one of the coach's uh, in-laws uh, and the, uh, the father um, uh, died at the scene. Uh, the mother uh, was, uh, was attacked with a knife and the uh, Chinese uh, local EMS did an outstanding job of stabilizing her and they took her to um, the, the trauma hospital and they performed uh, life-saving surgery and stabilized her, and um, uh, uh, later later that night, um, after I had completed the uh, uh, accompanying uh, uh, President and Mrs. Bush and the whole Bush family during um, that day of the Olympics, went over and um, White House nurse and myself checked on on the um, the individual, and she. Uh, she recovered physically. Uh, the emotional, mental um, takes longer, and uh, eventually uh, she was uh, uh, medevaced 
uh, back to the uh, U.S. where she continued her convalescence. So none of it is like moving equipment um, or moving, you know, or opening up checkbooks. It's all about having a plan and just being prepared for, um, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. Um, but it's what indiv- it's what healthcare people do every day. Is uh, a trauma comes in, um, you know, that's what saved President Reagan um, during uh, the assassination attempt. The GW people, um, you know, they they jumped on him and treated him like a uh, a trauma patient in Vietnam instead of a, a VIP. Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading that story last night, and my immediate assumption was how much gun violence is there in China? I thought nobody was allowed to have guns there. And um, so I looked it up and um, there actually is, there is a fair amount. I mean, it's just like any other country, but um, there is of course the problem with the communist party and how much, how reliable these crime statistics are. Um, And I I don't mind saying that because China is one of the few countries where we don't have any listeners. I guess we don't pass the firewall there. (laughs) We have Hong Kong and Taiwan, but not mainland China. But anyway, um, there are times, right, Jeff, where, you are pretty far away from care. Um, It could be a transatlantic flight on Air Force One. It could be, um, I know when, at least reportedly when Obama went to visit Kenya, there was a U.S. Naval hospital ship that was brought in offshore um, just to cover any, any, um, you know, casualty events there. Thankfully that didn't happen, but let's just talk about Air Force One, for example. And, And, you know, I know there's certain things you can't answer, but what can you be reasonably expected to treat up there? Um, and maybe tell us the story. There, there was one staffer that was having some chest pains one night. You were, you were, you know, tapped on the shoulder by a secret service agent. Um, that's a little different than many of our doctor listeners who hear the call from the flight attendant. Is there a doctor on board? <laughs> uh, g- give us an idea. What, what's going on in that aircraft and, and what, what are you prepared to actually do if you had to? Um, so I would say it probably is, 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 uh, is about the same as when you get uh, the call overhead on the um, on the airline, um, and um, you're a physician, you're a nurse. Kind of the advantage is you know most of the kind of the hundred people on board, um, and um, you also uh, like anything else. Uh, you would uh, uh, specifically with chest pain. Um, you would pull out um, an algorithm uh, that you that every physician has in their head, whether they they kind of admit it or not. It's um, well when they have chest pain, I I um, I think um, you know describe it to me. Um, I look at them and decide if they're 20 or 80 years old or somewhere in between, and that helps me stratify them by age. Or you ask them. Um, we have a we have a 12 lead EKG. Um, uh, on board um, Air Force One, which uh, uh, most airlines do not, um, and more importantly, uh, people that know how to read it, run it and read it. So we can get uh, that EKG back and read professionally within 10 minutes. Um, and uh, you know, those that practice uh, emergency medicine, that doesn't always tell you everything that's going on. Sometimes it gives you the false sense of security. But at least that's a bit of information that can tell you if you have that ST segment elevation or not. Um, and then um, the uh, risk factors. So somebody that has two or three of the Framingham 
uh, risk factors of uh, smoking, high lipids, high blood pressure, then your, your index of suspicion is going to skyrocket logarithmically. Um, and uh, then we have a point of care testing of uh, 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 troponin. Um, and so all of those together help stratify into, uh, you know, this is, this is low risk um, uh, or this is uh, high risk. Um, the other thing that every airline has is every airline has a flyover plan. Um, so if there's a midair declared emergency, then they can all get to the ground and land at a um, airport uh, within a, a couple dozen minutes. Um, uh, so it, it would, what you would expect from a 747 is you're going to land at a 747 capable runway. So you got to have every runway in the world pre-positioned into your, um, uh, your equipment. And uh, so you would be on the ground. And then obviously you have the world's best uh, communication and you have the secret service um, that if you're going to land, you would have um, a medical team, medical transport, security team, security, uh, present that you would um, uh, go to definitive care. Um, but on board, uh, like for any other um, uh, heart ischemic event, we have um, uh, oxygen, we have medications. Um, uh, you know, we, we, um, we are not going to do a, uh, a bypass graft. We're not going to do um, uh, percutaneous uh, coronary intervention, maybe someday, um, but it's also We're still classified. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also limited um, by the personnel on board where, um, you know, you have a physician that's experienced in emergency medicine, a critical care nurse. Um, when Senator Frist used to ride, I would uh, say, Hey, Dr. Frist, if we need a double, you know, heart lung transplant, then I'll, I'll call you up and you can, uh, help out. But, uh, most of it is limited by the personnel and not the equipment. We have, you know, we have anesthesia capabilities, we have monitoring capabilities. Um, and it's uh, often if we're in an austere location, we can actually bring the, uh, the specific teams, if it's a trauma team, uh, they can actually work out of the uh, Air Force One medical compartment. Um, but if you're if you're on a routine flight, um, I, I guess there's no such thing as routine flight. Then then uh, you just you you need to be prepared for the uh, to evaluate common things that happen. Yeah, it's it's funny. I've been in that position where I was the the doctor on the airplane, and my response is not oh here we go. My response is please let there be another doctor <laughs> being an orthopedist. Um, oh. When, when we were talking about the Beijing Olympics, you brought up the point about the assessment that you did. You went and saw the trauma hospital. You said, okay, this isn't going to work. We need the trauma people there uh, at all times. And I think a lot of the plan, uh, um, the transformation and, and the awareness of having the right personnel requires that assessment. Um, the question I have for both of you is your medical system, who does that assessment? Is it something you train the the doctors in the system to do? And then do you listen them to them as to what their needs are? And as you go from your medical system and say, okay, this is something we want to have more 
uh, universe more nationally, who is going to be doing those assessments to say, well, we need more trauma surgeons here. We need um, more people who can do this. We need the emergency people in this community. So at, at Advent Health, um, there's basically two, 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 a two-pronged philosophy. One is empower the front lines. And then second is um, hold accountable with reasonable measures. So many other healthcare systems, like from on high, they'll say, uh, this is the standardization. This is the protocol that you have to do. And um, so Advent Health and the uh, kind of the transformative healthcare approach is the exact opposite, is what we found. The only thing that the only way healthcare ever changes is if you go into those physicians and nurses that are taking care of patients every single day. So um, you're exactly right. It's the methodology and um, the design phase of the methodology is we gather together physicians and nurses that are taking care of that disease, whether it's a cabbage, whether it's a heart transplant, whether it's ECMO use, whether it's chest pain in the ED, and then we say, okay, what's the evidence? What's your experience? Here's the literature. Here's pertinent data. And then quickly, that just kind of, okay, that's where we started. But then it quickly goes to what's the best way to take care of this patient? And, you know, they'll say, oh, I don't do a cookbook. I don't do recipe. Okay, let's, but you have to write down that written algorithm. Um, and the written algorithm starts with, uh, you know, identification and then uh, a stratification, indications, contraindications, and then more importantly, actions. Um, and then what you'll find is every single one of them will say, that's, that's my algorithm. I thought of that seven years ago. And the hospital was the, the barrier. And, and they're right. Um, but then if they have their algorithm... They put their names proudly by it, just like, um, you know, uh, John Hancock. And um, then you can't stop there. Um, the methodology is you got to have the vision, you got to communicate the vision. And um, well, why don't we do that today? And then this is where the, the the secret sauce is. We don't do it today because of A, B, and C. So identifying those barriers. Uh, we're worried about, you know, medical malpractice. We're worried about, um, you know, if, if we discharge a patient from the ED, they won't be able to get in to see somebody else. So you list out all of those barriers and Danny and his team are incredible of removing those barriers. And there's a lot of sacred cows in healthcare, in our own healthcare system you know, we've met the enemy and it's ourselves that that's what we've been able to remove. And then you can't snow them with a um, hundred measures. Physicians do not care about um, length of stay, about DRGs. What they care about is um, two or three key clinical measures. Did my patient live or die? And did, um, did they get followed up with a, um, another physician um, after I let them go. So you identify those two or three uh, key measures. 
And then before saying, oh, we've solved it for everybody in our 50 hospital healthcare system, we always make sure that there's a pilot. And so we pick kind of one, one hospital, uh, one department, and um, what you'll find is, and this is different from everybody else, it is certainly okay to deviate from the algorithm. You just have to tell us why. And uh, so what we find is more than 80% of the time, people just follow the algorithm. Okay, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's how is best to take care of patients. Um, you know, that's, um, I came up with this, my peers came up with this, but then there's something about individual variation. And so, you know, I, I deviated from the algorithm because this patient had an arrhythmia that I wasn't expecting. So I did something different. You know, I, I put them in to get a electrophysiological workup. So we learn a lot from those deviations. And actually we, we kind of celebrate, we learn from those deviations. And sometimes the algorithms themselves need to get tweaked. So it's that iterative, um, um, and then you feedback the results. So, um, you know, chest pain um, have been working on for, um, you know, now six years. We still, once a month, we feedback the results to the medical directors who discuss it with their, with their teams. So um, uh, that, that's the sustaining um, uh, part of it that everyone, um, you know, all of the short-term PI stuff, you know, there's PI projects that go five times and fix the same thing. It's because they're not doing the sustainment portion. Um, and then the, uh, the implementation, when you're ready to go, usually if it's a successful design and pilot, you can't hold it back. They are implementing it at, uh, we have one hospital that has 12 different emergency departments and boom, they, they just, um, it spreads um, like wildfire and um, the implementation, the education, education, education of of the staff, of the physicians, of the, of the follow-up, and it just happens uh, organically. And then the most important part is also the sustainment, which you provide them the reasonable measures and not, not financial measures, but clinical outcomes. And what you'll find is if you do what's best for the patient, it'll be what's best for business. Well, we only have a few more minutes here left here. So Jeff, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot two small questions at you. And then maybe Danny, if you want to close us out with some final thoughts and tell us more about when the book's coming out and where they can learn more about what's going on, um, you know, with these projects and things we've been talking about. So Jeff, these are kind of random questions here, but um, there's part of a huge list I didn't get to. So these are the ones I'm going to th throw at you. One, what's the best meal you ever had on Air Force One? And two, tell us about your strategy for getting President Obama to stop smoking, because I'm sure you discussed it with him. Um, you know, not only was he the president, but he was technically your, your uh, commanding officer. So go. Um, so usually people say, what was the best part of working at the White House? And, you, you know, I think the politically correct answer is the people, which, of course, all the different people are amazing. Um, but setting that aside, I would say the best part of um, working at the White House is, is the travel. So um, I was privileged to, uh, uh, to go to 90 different countries and you learn about the culture of people, 
you learn about the medical capabilities um, and just um, often in the U.S. our problem is that we're you know we're we're more centered on just our little uh, corner of the world instead of uh, you know being part of the global population and then people would say what's the worst part of um, working at the White House and I would say the travel so in uh, 2012 I think President Obama did 200 um, uh, trips and I did about 120 of them so the true heroes are not you know myself and the team but it's our families it's uh, our spouses our kids that um, you know just like any other military family they put up with their uh, their spouses um, missing birthdays missing milestones and they um, you know they're the true heroes that that uh, uh, help us uh, uh, do do our jobs every day. Um, with um, um, with with um, President Obama, I think there's there's a lot of I think out there in the uh, 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 that in public content. Um, I, I think when I um, uh, you know when when I met him, I made sure that. Um, if I ever uh, uh, said something to him, it's not to show him up, uh, but it would be um, in privacy of just, uh, you know, when, when uh, nobody else is around to give that, um, uh, that doctor patient ad advice and uh, whether it's in the written form or whether in the uh, in-person, um, uh, there, uh, there, there, there was a time that, um, you know, he's, he's a healthy weight. He notoriously eats healthy of, of, uh, arugula. Um, both he and president Bush, uh, exercised, um, every day. Um, health is more than the absence of disease. Health is actually, um, uh, it's gotta be fitness, you know, fitness is the fountain of youth. Um, so part of the strategy was to, um, uh, any, anyone around him that, uh, we just made sure to, um, uh, to eliminate, uh, smoking of, uh, anyone around him and, uh, presented him, I presented him different options and he chose the option that was best for him. And like any other thing, um, 100%, he gets all the credit for um, uh, about, a, about a week after he uh, signed Obamacare into law, then uh, uh, he, uh, he stopped smoking. And he um, and his, his wife has publicly uh, said that back in uh, 2010. And to my knowledge, um, he was 100% uh, uh, cured during that time. So just uh, as physicians, uh, the average person, um, you know, it takes at least eight or 80 times on their own. And we just have to continue to non-judgmentally, here's the information. This is the one thing that will change your life. You know, you have a wife that'll talk to you. You have children that love you. Um, you know, you have um, uh, fame and fortune. None of it matters um, if you're not alive in good health. And uh, just 
uh, uh, whether it's it's the president or a patient, um, they need uh, they don't need politics, they don't need policy, they just need trusted medical advice. Well said, Dan. If you'd be so kind, maybe close us out with some thought, closing thoughts, and then just let everybody know when they can expect the book out, where to find it, and more. You know. We'll put links up to all this on the website, but more about what you guys are doing at Advent Health. Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I think really to, to close out, the, the book itself is, is really bringing back the, the empowerment at the front line. Um, this, is, this is about showing that the, the clinical staff have an active say. Um, they need to be an active part of that, not just that, that short-term change that goes on, but for changing healthcare as a whole. And they have the power to do that. And in working in conjunction with the administrators, it is a, a force to be reckoned with. It is a team game. And as, as Jeff has been saying, the big part of all of this is about the communication. It's about physician to physician communication, physician to nurse, and more importantly, holding the patient at the heart of everything that goes on and then bringing together all of that evidence into one to be able to solve some of the, the issues that are there, to be able to breach the barriers. So we know that every healthcare organization, there are road stops that are there. And it's being able to identify those and being able to work through them. And that's a big part of what we've tried to, to illustrate within the book is it can be done, you can do it. There is a... Um, a sort of recipe that's available there to be able to work through, but to help structure what you do and to be able to have that voice and keep that communication going. And, and don't be afraid to be innovative. Don't be afraid to set that pot of water onto the campfire and let it start, mm -hmm. slowly start to boil mm -hmm. up. And the energy that comes out of that ends up that it starts to boil over. And once you're in that position, as, as Jeff said, it's hard to hold it back then. People want to do the right thing. So that's really the, the, the quick sum up of what's there. Um, the book itself is, is out on Amazon. It's going to be available August 24. It's also available on the Advent Health Press site as well. So there's a couple of ways that it can be accessed. And as with everything that we do, this is not a one-off. As you change, as we look to get that consistent change through there, it is iterative. We learn at each step. So, you know, we started with one clinical pathway that was the foundation of the work that we did. We're now in over 30 different pathways in, in different disease states that we work with. And that can range from OB to the chest pain to, to cabbages we've spoken about and sepsis. So there's a wide variety that can be worked at. And it's really about taking the initial step of bringing the, the clinical staff together and saying, let's do it. Everyone, that is Dr. Daniel Peach and Dr. Jeffrey Coleman, and their new book is Transformative Health. It's, uh, as, uh, as Danny just said, it's going to be coming out at the end of this summer, but we'll put links up to all of this on the website and um, more to what they're working on at Avent Health. And gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on. We had a, just a, a lot of fun having you on this morning. Thank you again for the invite. And that said, uh, everyone, wherever, whenever you're listening, take care. We'll see you here next time.